This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Let me go and explain, kind of under the radar, but I don't think it should be given what we've been talking about the last couple weeks. We're a few weeks removed from a couple violent incidents in the city that were very much back-to-back. And then you remember the week that the police dog was shot. First one, first police dog to become uh, deceased in the line of duty. They were serving a uh, arrest warrant for someone charged with second-degree murder. And yes, it wasn't just a cop, one cop and one dog. They had a tactical team. They had a, a group, and the guy still was able to get off rounds and uh, shoot this beautiful uh, dog, which you remember the name of, Bingo. So um, there was a lot of tension at the time between the police and and basically their their leadership and the mayor, because the mayor was kind of silent about some of the violent incidents in the city. She didn't say anything about the, the Leslieville shooting near the safe injection site. She didn't say anything about the dog. And we just we heard this from Jamal uh, Myers, who we'll hear from as well, who came in yesterday and is the new head of the TTC city councilor. And he did say this. Sometimes the job is just showing up. And he said, no matter what you think of John Tory's politics, Tory was good at that. You knew who the mayor was. You knew he was present. He didn't disappear for for moments in time. You might see something he'd say and you'd roll your eyes and go, well, yes, thank you, Captain Obvious. Or you might, if you care about the online conjecture and online statements via social media and whatnot, Tory was good at that. This is this day, so we're celebrating this, or we're honoring this, or we're sad about this. He was good at that. We're still seeing, I think, some growth in the game of Olivia Chow for that, um, and I'm not sure why it's uh, it's been a little bit of a struggle out of the gate, but things are moving in the right direction. Yesterday, there was a meeting, um, and it's deemed as, well, Olivia Chow made amends with the police association. Now... There's a lot of incentive for Olivia Chow and the police to get along. I'll explain that in just a second. But here you'll hear from the mayor, and then you'll hear from John Reed, who you regularly hear on Alex Pearson's show, usually weekly. But I always tune in for those segments. Here's Chow. Here's Reed. Things are getting better looking up. We talked about making sure that the frontline officers feel that they're being supported, appreciated in all the work that they do. We've spoken now. I think we have lines of communication are now created between us and the mayor. And those direct lines are important. Yeah, there is a, there is a lot of that. And it is good to have clear lines of communication. Everybody sort of got thrown into a new relationship here in the post-Tory wake of his resignation. And then things were very... Uh, stilted, if you will, with Deputy Mayor Jennifer McKelvey and the police. But as you know, and I know, when there's a transition period, you just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Life doesn't stop. Uh, Transit doesn't stop. Your job doesn't stop. Crime doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. But I think they're more on the same page now. Now, it's important that they both get something from this. Why? The police budget, the city budget, the city is dealing with major, major like not we're not talking potholes we're talking a cavern like a massive chasm in terms of what the city has money wise and the things they have to pay for so they must look to improve um efficiencies and eliminate inefficiencies now maybe you're hearing something i haven't but i just don't think they're looking very hard right now i don't and if anything you know we did with that famous interview with olivia chow in the spring what would you like to cut and she's like nothing 
I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what she said. I don't want to cut anything. I want to add things back. Right, I know. But if you said, hey, Brady, your household budget is this. What would you like to spend on? What would you like to cut? You think about those things. We're going to have to spend more here, so that means we can't spend here. We did this this weekend. That means it's quiet weekend. Stay at home. Don't spend any money. You do that as a student. You do that as a senior. And this city has a tight, tight leash on its budget. Why? I just said it. They're not looking as much as they could for inefficiencies. They are not trying to create revenue sources, hotel tax, hotel tax. They're not looking to create additional streams of revenue that other cities have figured out how to do. It doesn't matter where. Vancouver, Chicago, um, Raleigh, North Carolina. I can find you cities that find a way to make their own money and cut their and cut their spending. Toronto doesn't seem very good at that right now. I don't think that's telling tales out of school. Here's Olivia Chow on the need for a prudent budget and don't think the police aren't thinking about this. The city has a budget hole of $1.5 billion and uh, we are beginning the budget process so we, we haven't actually gone into much of that detail. But I assured everyone that there will be a collaborative approach. Yeah, collaborative approach, but that means collaborating with the police. Everybody has to get something here. By the way, um, public spats between mayors and police, I don't think they're unhealthy. Too many would be deemed unhealthy, but the odd one I would consider as being healthy. There should be some tension. There should be a relationship. There are going to be um, disputes among themselves. I famously look back to Los Angeles when Tom Bradley said after the Rodney King verdict, here's his quote, the men who beat Rodney King do not deserve to wear the uniform of the LAPD. Now, me saying that, me thinking that right away, he's right. They don't. And remember, they were acquitted in criminal court of doing anything wrong. Well, that stands strained relations between the mayor's office and the LAPD. I bet you a lot of officers agreed with him. But their concept is, hey, don't say it publicly. And I get that as well. Come behind closed doors and have a longer conversation about it. But you do need to step out. I can't criticize Olivia Chow for not talking about a police dog and then uh, not criticize her for not being out there and saying this is where we need to hold law enforcement accountable if there's a mistake. This is something we can tweak to do better. All those things are fair. I asked Jamal Myers when he came in about Olivia Chow and her leadership being front facing, being being willing to go to battle. I thought some of what he said was interesting. Here he is from yesterday's Toronto Today. How has the dynamic changed? You've you've had the uniqueness clearly um, for for better or worse of John Tory was the mayor for the first three or four months of you being city councilor. And now Olivia Chow has the tone changed because obviously we got into a situation with a mayoral by-election that when you it's not even like an age thing or a health thing, nobody could have anticipated we'd be voting twice for mayor Jamal in six months. Nobody could have anticipated that. What's changed? Uh, well, definitely the tone has changed. Yeah. Um, the and there's an optimism that you didn't really see before. Uh, you know what? Whatever you think of the previous mayor. Uh, Nobody got the sense that things were going to get markedly better. There wasn't that expectation. There was a sort of managing expectations in terms of what we could do, what we couldn't do. I think now with the new mayor, there's a sense of renewal. There's a sense that, okay, we may not get everything, but we can get some things. And the mayor has taken a very collaborative approach in terms of 
the council appointments, appointing not just allies, but, you know, people who are against her uh, to key positions. So really bring that whole Toronto spirit to confront some of the challenges that we're facing, which are quite large. So when the by-election happens, a lot of people wanted the job. Were you at all saying what I was saying? And a lot of our listeners were saying, where were you six months ago? I give Chloe Brown a ton of credit. She ran twice. A couple others ran twice, but we got a lot of people. I know Mitzi Hunter, a really popular MPP in Scarborough, came out and said, I want that job. Was it just, do you think nobody thought they could beat John Tory, Josh Matlow, Anna Bylaw, they didn't think they could beat John Tory, so they wanted to wait this out. And and they may have run in 2026, but it kind of the schedule sped up when he resigned. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Uh, you know, John Tory was a very, very popular mayor. Uh, he was everywhere. Whatever you think of his politics, he was everywhere. Any event in Scarborough, no matter how big or small, it was a very good chance I was running. There's a ribbon. Job. He's going to cut it. <laughs> exactly. Tomorrow. And, you know, people remember that. Half of the job is showing up. Um, yeah. And politics is all about timing. So... A lot of people, you know, they might have had ambitions to run, but they knew they couldn't beat him. And this opportunity sort of presented itself out of nowhere. Uh, So that's why I think why you saw 102 people running. Yeah. So that's all true. And that's all reasonable. Um, And we'll see where Chow goes. Remember, many people reacting to the story yesterday about the two others charged, including a safe injection site worker in this Leslieville murder. That's a problem. That's a massive problem. And people are saying, get used to this, Toronto. This is what happens when you tie the cops hands behind their back, won't let them do their job. And I'm not saying they're wrong, but that's going to be, are we going to get, you know, a crossroads, a conflict, a collision between what Olivia Chow thinks we should do and what the police think we should do about situations exactly like that. Many people were worried about that when Chow was elected. Many people defending Chow, saying it will make for a more progressive city. Depends on your politics, doesn't it? This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. I always like the idea um, that we've got schools, universe, whether it's university, whether it's high school. I think it's a little less in primary school where you start talking about current events with maybe it's around grade six. As I remember that you're getting taught history. And we're reframing history and having better conversations um, about history. And we've needed to for a long, 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 long time. But when you get to high school, um, I think it's really, really interesting that um, the U.S. universities, and I'd like to see Canadian schools do this, are launching a partnership to elevate free speech. Why? They think U.S. democracy is threatened when free speech is threatened. So this is actually a good thing. The president of James Madison University is working to cultivate freedom of expression on campuses. What's the one criticism you hear about university campuses lately? Can't say anything. Shut your mouth. Be careful. (laughs) Don't step in it. And I never remember that. I never remember that. I'd have courses. I remember I was a poli size student. But even for journalism, for English, you would talk about the relevance of of old stories. You would talk about issues of race, of uh, sexuality. I remember doing a, a feminist film course that I loved so, so much where you're watching films from a female perspective. You're watching Marilyn Monroe films. You're watching all the way to Thelma and Louise. You're watching you're watching from a feminist perspective. And I loved that framing. I loved it. I did well in the course as well because I loved the movies. But either way, it was it felt like it was more of the quote unquote safe space to actually show up at school and say things. And um, the concept is like, let's do this now because people are worried about getting shunned for opinions. 
for saying unacceptable things. And remember, I'd make the distinction between consequence culture and cancel culture. You have to be accountable for your actions. You can't just spew off and say this and say that. Not just that it's not just that it's a wrong opinion, but if the facts are wrong. I mean, clearly that's the case. But what I don't want to do is say, well, I think this about that. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, not only do I like your idea, I don't like your idea. I don't like where it came from. I don't like you. I don't like anyone who sounds like you. I don't like your gender. I don't like your race. I don't like any of that. We never did that. And we should have never opened the door to where that transpires. Let's make people accountable for their words and actions, but not necessarily blow them out the door. And I'm worried that university professors feel that that's very difficult to have an opinion, weigh in on things. And it's very difficult. The idea that I'd whip out a camera phone in one of my policy policy classes and start recording somebody is ludicrous. But I know it's happening. You as listeners tell me it happens. I hear about it in my neighborhood of people sending kids to university and Zoom especially was bad for this. When you're teaching classes online, you don't know who's recording you. You don't know who's writing down your every word. You know you don't know who's going to spin your words back onto you. And I say this, it's a 17 and a half hour long live radio thing that we do during the week here, three and a half hours times five. And if you think I'm going to get everything right live for 17 and a half hours, I'm not. I'm going to try to not be uneducated about something, malfeasant about something, cruel about something. Um I'm I'm just that's that's the goal at the end of the day. And and when you get it wrong, say you got it wrong the very first chance you get. Either it's the next day, either it's the next segment, whatever. But try we need our schools and our educators to feel more like that. And I see this uh, blog from an educator named Joanne Jacobs, and it's titled Afraid to Teach. It's safer to avoid current events. And here's a quote from a teacher. I hate to admit this, but I've been starting to walk away from discussion in my classroom. I've been doing more and more. Watch the video, read the book, answer the questions, wait for the bell, leave my classroom. It's a shame that teacher feels that way. It's a shame that we walked society into her or him feeling that way. Your job is to help develop conversation, enhance debate, be right sometimes, be wrong other times, and then realize when you're wrong. We're not trying to, we shouldn't be trying to trap each other in these educational circumstances. Takara Small is in for Shiba Siddiqui this week. What do you make of all this? Is it, and is it at a, are high school and college comparable at these levels? Because there's an evolutionary process when we talk current events as an adult and as a 13 or 14 year old. Well, so, you know, you mentioned that like, you know, people are recording people in classrooms or, you know, um, uploading that online. I just want to say like that happens everywhere now. Like if you are in a public space, what I found is that people will just record you. I mean, there's a million videos online of people on planes who have been recorded. I mean, we laugh, it goes viral, but like there is no space these days. At least I feel like, I don't know if listeners feel like that, where there's like this understanding that you don't want to be photographed or videoed or recorded and shared online even if you don't even if you don't want to so i think that happens in schools but as an adult i think it ha- like on the ttc it's it's everywhere i never yeah. i never know right but uh, you know the thing is is like right now there are so many things happening in the world like we were talking about the hawaii fires there's a state of emergency in yellowknife in canada there's heat wave in bc 
And yeah, like young people are going to find out about what's happening in the world, like whether it's talked about in school or outside of it. And now a lot of people are going on TikTok or Instagram to, to hear and learn, maybe not necessarily, you know, reading um, news articles or listening to, you know, radio stations where there's, you know, facts involved. So I, I think like if it's not talked about, kids are still going to hear about this. And it, and it may come from like a blogger or an influencer um, who doesn't really care about the story, just wants views and clicks. Like I, kids I th- are going to talk about it. Yeah, I'm reading what this Purdue, uh, professor says, and he's a poli-sci professor at Washington University in in uh, the Huskies in Washington State, so not in D.C. If we don't do a good job of helping them, meaning the students, be careful readers and careful listeners, it stands to reason that as citizens, they won't be careful listeners and careful expressors of their own thought, and it will be difficult for us to function as a self-governing society. Takara, we're probably already there. <laughs> like that's that's the problem. It's probably already there. You and I, I mean, could talk yeah. about the air quality four weeks ago or fires, and you're gonna get some people saying this is all about global warming and climate change, and you'll get some people saying, No, there's environmentalists starting starting fires everywhere and it's a conspiracy. We used to be so free of and I'm the original guy that believes uh, John F. Kennedy was shot by a lot more people than Lee Harvey Oswald. So I'll go to my grave with that one. But we're we're in the we're in the so deep in the weeds now on people who believe this or who believe that. And I don't in some ways we've made this happen by not allowing proper conversation and debate about nuanced stuff. Yeah, I didn't. Is there an alternative? I'm not going to. Is there an alternative theory for that? For which? For JFK? Yeah, there is. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I'm going to do some Googling afterwards. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I think like. I don't think it's past the point where we can start talking and like introducing this concept. Like, I don't think it's like, oh, okay, well, TikTok and instant, like all this online discussions are taking place. So like throw in the towel. I think a lot of young people honestly go online because they're looking for more discourse or they're looking for more people to talk about and talk through their feelings. And like, honestly, like I, I'm, you know, I, I'm not guess my age, but I'm on the younger side and I just like don't understand how kids can deal with the flood of information that comes their way. Oh no, they're without, getting battered exactly. And, and ta- yeah, without talking to maybe an older adult or someone. Yeah, and the and I got such influence again. Didn't agree. You shouldn't agree with anybody a hundred percent all the time about anything. You have to have your own opinions. You won't get anywhere in life without them. But when I see universities are trying to elevate freedom of expression. That tells me that it's been suppressed for a a number of years. And that's too bad because that's not the university experience I remember. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. We were talking about healthcare yesterday. We had Dr. Sahail Gandhi on, who was the former head of the Ontario Medical Association. And not that his perspectives turned, but we were talking about uh, dollars and cents and just practicality of people who leave Ontario and, and I think leave Canada to a great extent um, to get a surgery that they need. This could be something for a grandparent. This could be something for your 12 or 13 year old kid. Uh, and the numbers are staggering and the millions of dollars spent out of Canada are staggering. So secondstreet.org put data together. And this is why we do this. We talk healthcare data because it's actual fact. It's not conjecture. It's not speculation. It's not well some something anecdotal that's a worst case scenario. So new Ontario health data shows something alarming. And that's the number of patients who passed away while waiting for surgery. Kind of post-COVID universe, 22 
23. So basically the fiscal year, and it's up 49% since the previous year. So these are really concerning numbers. And I wanted to bring on someone from secondstreet.org to have a conversation about it. And he is the president of secondstreet.org. He is Colin Craig. Colin, it's a great pleasure to have you on Toronto today. Thanks for making the time for our audience. Thanks for having me, Greg. You guys do a lot of good work there. And uh, and and like I said, you get into data, you don't get into speculation, uh, you, you get into practical things. Um, but when you started assembling these numbers, uh, you probably saw some very worrying trends. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And there, there's really two big sets of data. One is looking at the number of patients that died while waiting for surgery. And that has increased the last three years for sure in Ontario. And it's it's up sizably from where it had been for a number of years. Like you said uh, earlier, it's a 49% increase year over year, about 2,100 patients died while waiting for surgery. And just to be clear to your listeners, this represents a variety of cases, everything from patients waiting for cataract surgery to something more serious, like a, a heart uh, procedure. So you you know, you might not, you're probably not going to die if you don't receive your cataract surgery in mm -hmm. time, but uh, I don't think we can dismiss those cases because it, it it impacts a patient's quality of life in their final years. If you're walking around with cloudy vision, or maybe you you have uh, you know extreme pain because of uh, you're waiting for hip operation, those types of things. Well, it really does. And I mentioned calling the people that would travel, you know, across the border to the states, uh, or or even hop a flight and and go to somewhere in Europe to get something done. But a lot of the people, if if it's that life threatening, they do that, but they have the means, they have the wherewithal to do it. Many of the people we're probably talking about on this list who passed away may have even thought about that option, considered the option, um, looked in their bank account and decided, I, I can't, I, I just can't do it. So it ends up being, we talk about condemning the idea of, of two tiers of healthcare. But we kind of have that already when we lose people who probably can't afford to travel and uh, and get on a plane or get in a car and spend a week away from work to do these important surgeries. Well, you're 100 percent right. I mean, the wealthy right now, they can certainly afford to go abroad for surgery. It's, it's not as difficult. Uh, a lot of middle income people will do it, too. We've talked to people that work in in healthcare, even nurses who, who have gone abroad for for care. Uh, teacher's assistant in Alberta. We've talked to people from all kinds of different walks of life who are going abroad for care. But you're right; it's it's often lower income people that get left behind because uh, you know they simply don't have the resources to to go abroad for care. You know, you spot as well um, in terms of the data: uh, patients dying while waiting um, for a diagnostic scan. And we've all had that moment where, oh, I, I think I'm going to get an MRI for something, something that's nagging or something that's really serious. And, and the next thing someone will say back to you is, well, I hope you know somebody. And again, those are, there's sort of a, a rhythm to, uh, to being able to know somebody or know somebody who knows somebody and speed the lineup. But the, the number that jumped from 2122 to 2223 is it's upwards of 2000 people. And I know it's a province of 15 million, but that's a lot of people waiting for scans that weren't able to get them in time. Yeah. And, and who knows what the stories are behind these numbers in terms of maybe if someone received the scan earlier, they would have received some kind of surgery sooner. And then mm -hmm. maybe lives could have been either improved in their final days or maybe their lives could have been saved it's it's not clear but certainly what's interesting about these numbers is you see a steady increase year after year after year dating back to 2015 16 it's a, it's a good indicator when people talk about this healthcare crisis 
due to COVID. And I would put that in quotation marks because, you know, I would argue that the system was in a crisis before COVID. And this shows that there was a growing, growing problem every single year leading up to COVID. And then all COVID did was exacerbate the situation. But we're, we're desperately in need of health reform. We've seen some positive signs from the Ontario government. You've got to give credit where it's due where they're partnering with private clinics, that's a positive step. But uh, if they did more in the way of health reform, uh, we could see uh, better results for patients. Colin Craig is joining us from secondstreet.org on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. Yeah, I I look at the stat we were just talking about, number of patients who died waiting for a diagnostic scan. It's under 1,500 in 2015-16, and it's almost at 9,500 for this last uh, fiscal year. So, when you see a trend line like that, Colin, what does that tell you? It can't be just one thing. It, it isn't, you know, resources being clawed back. It isn't a lack of MRI machines. What does it say to you, the data? You know, I, I combine the data with with what I know from talking with patients and people in the system. We have a lot of good people that work in the system. Everyone knows a, a nurse or a doctor who uh, you know, really tries hard. They're good people. They've got into the business because they want to try and help patients and so forth. The, the problem is that we have a system that's broken. Governments have poured so much money into healthcare. It's gone up significantly higher than the rate of inflation when you look at the numbers over the years and how much it spends, the system spends per person. So you got all this money in the system, but we're not producing results. And that's a clear sign that we need reform. We should be looking at what uh, other countries that have better performing universal healthcare systems do. Countries like Sweden and France and others in Europe and maybe Australia, uh, they're doing a better job than us. And we need to be looking at them and uh, copying some of the, the good things that they're doing to reduce wait times and provide better care for patients. Colin, I'll, fi- I'll finish by saying I-, I put politicians on and I ask them and I say, you know, if you, if you if you embrace this particular system, but but you do not want you think the U.S. is a an absolute tire fire and a disaster. And it, it sure isn't for everybody. It sure isn't for people who have benefits. I didn't make much money when I lived in the U.S., but I had a health plan and I had a knee surgery there and we had a baby born there. And I there's nothing I could possibly complain about about my treatment. But that said, the politicians kind of frame it that way. And and I almost think it's 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 based on ideology and it's willful blindness. I'm like, how could you not consider what's working in some other country? We do it with, like I said, every other aspect of economy and transit and, and big cities and roads and 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 food. We do it. We do it all over the place yeah. by looking at these other countries. You know, my advice to media would be this. If anyone wants to suggest that more money is the solution just ignore them and stop talking to them because that is the definition of insanity we like i said we have seen government spending explode on healthcare for decades now it doesn't matter which political party you're talking about you're seeing it go up and up and up across the country there is a lot of money in the system governments will even concede that they're spending a lot on healthcare. they brag about it we're not getting the results so if someone wants to come on and say oh well there's there's not enough spending in that. That just shows they don't know what they're talking about. And personally, I would ignore them. Colin Craig from secondstreet.org. And that's where you can go, secondstreet.org. All these numbers are right there, quite verifiable. Uh, and like I said, not not uh, not the conjecture, not the ideology, the raw numbers. And it's only going in a bad direction for us. Thank you very much for making the time for our audience here in Toronto and, and across Ontario. I appreciate it.
Thanks a lot, Greg. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Saw this yesterday and I saw this before the inflation numbers, which showed an uptick of uh, inflation. But it's like you're it, it, it just you're inconsolable when you see this kind of stuff that right now we're not building enough homes. I know we see cranes in the sky, shovels in the ground. You're hearing about projects, but a lot of projects are getting canceled. Why? High rates. We got a severe housing shortage, but we have high interest rates. And during the pandemic, people started building things and they started doing home renos and all that stuff. Why? Low interest rates. People were home. Consumer savings. They had all that working for them. And so right now, not dissimilar to the conversation we just had with the mayor of Peterborough, if everything is a crisis, nothing is. But we have so much can be solved with increasing housing starts and making it easier. We've talked before about the Canadian government wipe out the HST on new starts. Why not do that? There's tons of things the province could be doing and we're not like the house is on fire and the federal government's upstairs making breakfast and the provincial government's downstairs, uh, you know, playing playing table tennis in the basement. This is a problem. And every mayor is screaming for this to change, screaming for this to change. And I bet you builders are as well. I want to welcome on the president and CEO of the GTA Home Builders Association. He is Dave Wilkes. Dave, it's a pleasure to have you on Toronto today. I appreciate you making the time. Good morning on a lovely morning. Yeah, well, it is. And when I lay all that out, um, it's greatly concerning that there's a lot of um, boxes that we're just not able to check right now to get more shovels in the ground, to get more housing built, because um, (laughs) building and developing does cost money. And we're not finding either the workers or not finding the capital to start a lot of projects or keep a lot of projects going even. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, Greg. There's a there's a number of things that are affecting the uh, the housing market right now, and you know we've been here before uh, as a as a country. You know, um, when the millennials, sorry, baby boomers, were looking to uh, purchase homes and moving that big demographic through our market uh, post war, we've we've seen the need for increased housing before, and we have been able to solve it. So I absolutely hear your your comments about that we're in a crisis, but I do believe there are solutions that the governments have at their fingertips that they need to need to implement. And we need to use the current focus and momentum around solving this to get to actual solutions. So I'm hopeful that we can get to solutions. There is no doubt we need, as the provincial government has so rightly framed, at least 1.5 million more homes in the province of Ontario to meet the demand that we see coming. And I truly believe that's, that's probably a conservative number with the increasing immigration that we have to uh, uh, to continue to create growth in the country. I think so. I think so. Is, is there something the federal government could do for a greater tax incentive? I, I mentioned, you know, at least if not wiping it out, defer the HST on, uh, on say, purpose-built rentals. Is there anything in that context we could do? You nailed it, Greg. There's, there's a couple of things that could be done right away by the federal government, and we are calling on the federal government as part of their fall economic statement to uh, to do these things. One, The rebate that is provided on each HST when you purchase a new home was introduced almost two decades ago. It hasn't been updated. So it's a sliding scale 
it tops out at around 400000 depending on the particular home. Uh, home prices have tripled since that uh, rebate level was put in place. We need to see that uh, amount indexed to inflation at least over the last 20 years and provide some relief to new home buyers in that regard. And you, you put on, pointed out a very important second one, purpose-built rental. Yeah. We are underserviced dramatically by pur- purpose-built rental uh, in, this, uh, in the GTA and across the country. Exempting those projects from HST would be a huge step. And we estimate that there'd almost be 200,000 more units built in the GTA or started in the GTA uh, almost immediately if that exemption was provided. So two really important levers that can be done very quickly by the federal government. And if they're serious about addressing the housing crisis, we uh, believe they should be. And I was, I was quite uh, heartened by the housing minister's comments yesterday in Vancouver, where he particularly uh, referenced the need to take a look at purpose-built rental and providing some uh, changes in the HST treatment. Yeah, I think there's that. We're always hesitant um, to talk about immigration, um, and I, I don't know I don't know why. I know why, but I also look and I say we have to have practical um, considerations about what we can handle and what we can't. I think universities are starting, universities and colleges are starting to look in the mirror and have real conversations about international students, Dave. But what are what are some of the things you look at and you say, we got to find this balance between who we who we can um, who we can have here, and if, if there's no, we're setting people up for failure, we want them to come here, thrive, succeed, work, and if we don't have places for them to live that are affordable, that are practical, they're going to fail, and then that's on us. Yeah, we're we're a nation of immigrants, as we all know, Greg. And I, immigration is a very important source of uh, growth uh, for our country. Without immigration, we will. Uh, our economy will not achieve the growth that we all um, depend on, quite frankly. And and I think you've hit on a, on a much bigger issue. It's not only newcomers uh, to our country. It's uh, those that are uh, looking to buy their first home. We, If we don't solve the housing supply issues that we're facing, there's going to be two consequences. We won't be able to attract workers to our urban areas where we're feeling the, this crisis in the most uh, dramatic way, which will impact our ability to compete internationally. And secondly, it's, without solving housing supply issues, we're going to have some a society that, that we don't recognize and we don't like, and we're seeing the beginnings of that. So I think there's probably you know several big issues that we're facing and have choices to make on how we solve. But solving housing supply is uh, among, if not number one, uh, certainly among the top three for economic reasons and societal ones. You know this has transpired just based on the last week and some of the, the coverage, uh, understandably so, of, of the province and the green belt. But I'd ask you, um, developers, I feel like there's going to be good and bad in every industry. You name it, teachers, um, law enforcement, what I do, what you do. I worry um, b- builders also need to have bottom lines. They're going to build what sells profitably. If you have a business and you can't build a profitable home, you won't build, whether that's the size of the house or whether that's the area. What's fair or unfair to say uh, uh, about developers? Because we we need builders as much as we need buyers or sellers right now. I'm very, very, very proud to uh, represent the uh, home building and development industry. It, it, uh, it's a core part of our our economy. It's a huge driver of uh, jobs. It's a huge driver of economic activity. And you're right. Uh, our industry builds the homes that people need to, to live in. And so we work very cooperatively with governments to to look at opportunities for building more housing, to 
designate, you know, immigration policies, making sure that they're looking at bringing in skilled laborers, uh, looking at with municipalities to invest in infrastructure. Greg, I think it's a, an important point that if a piece of land is in service, so it doesn't have pipes, doesn't have road, it takes 15 to 20 years to build on that piece of land without that servicing. So we're calling on the federal government right now to invest in infrastructure. We're calling on the province to invest in infrastructure to make sure when that land is needed for growth, that it doesn't take those 15 to 20 years. Speeding up approvals, there's a number of things that we could do in order to achieve the goals that we have as an industry for the, for our customers. It's amazing you mentioned that, Dave. We're talking to Dave Wilkes, uh, President and CEO of the Toronto GTA Home Builders Association. We had the mayor of Whitby on, Elizabeth Roy, yesterday, and she said, well, they're planning 5,000 homes in North Whitby. And we've already told them right now, we don't have an electrical grid for those 5,000 homes. And if you don't have that, you don't have infrastructure. Never mind a place to shop, a place for schools, a place to walk, a place to exercise. You don't have anything without electricity. And the grid is a massive issue in our province right now. I couldn't agree with the mayor more. And that's one of the things, in addition to adjusting the HST treatment, as we talked about earlier, investing in that necessary infrastructure. The federal government has an approximate $4 billion housing innovation fund. We believe some of those funds should be uh, used to work with municipalities to create the infrastructure the mayor of Whitby was talking about, along with the other things that I mentioned. So, there, you know, this, this is not a, a quick fix. This is not a magic bullet fix. There are a number of things that need to be done. Infrastructure is one. Speeding up approvals, uh, which we could talk about for a long time, is another, but we have an opportunity right now with this focus, with this, uh, I hate to use the word crisis, but it's because it suggests that there's no opportunity. But with the, the recognition that we need to build more housing, yeah, I think we all need to pull in the right direction to achieve that. The federal government, the provincial government, the municipal governments, our industry and our communities. And I'm feeling hopeful that we are getting there, but I'm, I'm tired of talk and we need to see action. 100%. Dave, let's have more conversations about this. I appreciate you coming on today. My pleasure. Anytime, Greg. All right. Dave Wilkes, President and CEO of the Toronto GTA Home Builders Association. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Peterborough's not experiencing anything any different than any other community right now. Um, There are issues with people who are unhoused. There are issues with homeless people. There are issues with tents and communities. And they have a plan And maybe this is a prototype that other cities will look at and can look at. I know that it's worked in some U.S. cities. Um, They're going to put 50 new modular cabins on municipal property. We want to have on the mayor of that city to talk about this ambitious plan. But like I said, it just may work. He's also a former former MPP as well and joins us now on Toronto Today. He is Jeff Leal. Mayor Leal, thank you very much for the time uh, and for being on here in Toronto. I appreciate it. Greg, uh, good to be with you today, and it's uh, it's always great to have an opportunity uh, to talk about things in Peterborough to the broader uh, GDHA audience. Oh, morning. I love! I'm a big Peterborough fan. Love the arena up there. I used to do OHL play by play for Saginaw. Loved coming up to oh, your city. I loved we had a it. Wonderful run this year with our Peterborough Beats all the way to Kamloops. You did, you did. That's right, that's right. Um, it, it's it's this is so. Um, I won't call it overdue, but it's essential, and I think. You're trying to balance the, you know, the idea of compassion with the idea of of what makes your city a great city. And it's not been easy. It's not been easy for any mayor in any city. This is not a Toronto, Ottawa problem anymore, is it? Well, Greg, truly, it's a it's a North American, uh, North American problem. Uh, I have taken the opportunity uh, since I got the great privilege of being elected mayor of the city of Peterborough last October 
uh, to look at uh, many approaches uh, uh, that might uh, be helpful uh, right here in Peterborough. Uh, I determined, uh, we determined uh, through the campaign last fall uh, that the status quo wasn't working, uh, that we're going to have to pick a lane and do something uh, significantly different uh, to address homelessness in our community. We're seeing individuals uh, with many uh, complex problems, uh, uh, substance abuse, uh, uh, mental health issues, uh, broader overall health issues, cardiac problems, respiratory problems. So we want to move pretty decisively in a, uh, in a new direction. On Las Bay, we, uh, we approved a comprehensive plan, uh, which, will be, uh, con- which will consist of uh, 50 uh, modular homes. And we see these modular homes with 24-7 support service as an important bridge to per- permanent housing. Uh, working with the Government of Ontario and the Government of Canada, uh, we see this as a, a significant path forward. And your city shelters, I mean, to be to be clear, uh, they're they're to capacity, they're overflowing and there's very little like so many of the towns. I live in Ajax, so I'm not too far from you east of Toronto. And at the same time, it's there's 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 no cavalry coming, is there? There's not enough federal help. There's not enough provincial help. Cities are very much on their own for these things right now. Municipalities, uh, Greg, are at the forefront uh, of this uh, of this public policy matter. Uh, as someone who also, you know, served uh, for 15 years at the provincial level, uh, this is the toughest public policy issue that I've ever faced yeah. because there's no one answer to it. Uh, normally, I was used to working in an environment where you would have policy options and you knew the outcomes. Uh, this will be a, an ongoing uh, effort, uh, but I, I was determined and I said so publicly that tending is not acceptable. It's not acceptable for people that want to use our parks it's not acceptable for the safety of individuals experiencing homelessness. So we've picked a direction along with resources from the government of Ontario, and we're moving forward uh, in a pretty decisive uh, manner. And we do know uh, that other municipalities across Ontario are certainly looking uh, to the policy initiative that we've put forward here in Peterborough. Jeff Leal is joining us, Mayor of the City of Peterborough. They've got a plan for 50 individual modular housing units for people experiencing homelessness. Um, where these where these uh, modular housing units go, I'm sure was up for uh, d- debate a fair bit. That you're going along Wolf Street, you're going near the shelter. Is there a specific reason this is the best spot? Is it access to services? Is it access to food and water? What's why? What makes this area work where others may not work so well? Wolf Street is a property that is owned uh, by the city of Peterborough. Uh, there was already an existing uh, a building on the property that is being uh, that is, has been used as a shelter. Uh, we're certainly uh, bringing in uh, showers and water, and and uh, it is our our goal to implement twenty four seven services. Uh, that's what the community around there uh, expects. We've also uh, Greg set up a a community liaison committee that individuals, neighbors in the area will be will be part of that committee. So they. They really will be working with us as we work through the various next steps. Uh, uh, when the modular homes arrive, uh, we're anticipating them coming in mid-September. You mentioned so we're, pre- we're preparing the site as we speak. Yeah, you mentioned there's no easy answer. There isn't for mayors. There isn't for the premier. There isn't for the prime minister. There just isn't. And at the same time, there's 50 individual housing units. 
What do we do when you offer someone a unit to get themselves back on the feet and they say, thanks, but no thanks. And they, they say, I'm, I'm staying out. I'm staying under a tree. I'm staying in a sleeping bag. I'm staying in my tent. I, I, I don't know the answer. Is there an answer? Well, Greg, we're, we're going to, uh, we've been doing, uh, for want of a better term, uh, interviewing, the, interviewing these individuals, trying to put together uh, an inventory uh, of needs that they have. Um, the broad-based objective here is to get individuals uh, on a new trajectory in their life. Uh, because always remember that these individuals are, could be someone's a wife, husband, yeah. brother, sister, good friend. Uh, they need to be uh, treated with dignity and respect. And as I said, the overall goal is to get individuals on a new trajectory in life. Did this did this problem for Peterborough, this issue for Peterborough, let's call it, did it did it just explode within a matter of months or did you see a slow, gradual process? I know I drove up to Sudbury for my kids soccer two, sure. two falls ago and I was shocked. I was shocked by the amount of tents. I was shocked by the amount of people um, that that were that that looked and appeared unhoused. But someone said, no, no, this all has happened because it, it, in the last eight, 10 months, how would you describe it for that? So that's 23 months away. I give you that anecdote. How would you describe its its flow of Peterborough to people being sleeping outside and being in tents and being unhoused? Well, Greg, I think one of the things that we're seeing is uh, over the last five decades in the province of Ontario, we've uh, we've had a policy of deinstitutionalization. Mm-hmm. And over that five decades, we've lost a lot of our, our treatment capacity. Uh, in years gone by, there were uh, hospitals uh, uh, around the province, regional centers uh, uh, that provided treatment facilities uh, for mental health, uh, substance abuse uh, that were publicly paid for. So over a period of time, we've lost that capacity. Um, and now we got to start looking at ways to rebuild that capacity. And I, yeah. I give full marks to the government of Ontario later this year. Uh, we'll be opening up a 12-bed uh, a treatment center uh, here in the city of Peterborough. Uh, but that's just the first step in a long process where uh, I believe the government of Canada, in coordination with all provinces and territories, are going to have to look at rebuilding this treatment capacity. 100%. It's a start. It's a start. But it's it's like running the first mile of a marathon. Um, that's that's how this appears to me. I got to go time-wise. I loved having you on. And next time I'm up in Peterborough, um, I'd be happy to visit. Thanks so much for this today. Greg, thanks so much for your time. I truly appreciate it. Awesome. Jeff Leo, uh, the mayor of Peterborough. I think those are really interesting concepts. And and I think he's he's got it right. I think he's got it grounded. And I think he's got the sense as well. You can't do anything without treatment. You can't do anything without providing options for people.